Okay. Hi, everybody. Uh, today's January 31st, 2023. Uh, new year, new thoughts, new ideas. I'm happy to have uh, an older friend with me, uh, older in the sense that we've met before. Um, he's probably not that old, <laughs> um, but a brilliant guy, uh, David Bell. Uh, frankly, the world should be listening to him more and a lot of other people, perhaps less. Um, he's an expert on uh, global health in the uh, actual health part of global health and the global part of global health, uh, perhaps bringing a better perspective to where our priorities should be and should have been. Um, so, David, tell us a little bit, refresh our viewers' memories of uh, what you've been doing, uh, what your uh, credentials are, and what are your perspectives on, in particular, our topic for today, uh, COVID's passing over uh, Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular. Yeah, um, I mean, at a, at a high level, I think COVID is, you know, there's a lot of, um, for three years, stuff in the press and media and so on about, you know, scientists are puzzled or bamboozled or whatever by the low reported mortality in Africa from COVID. Um, which, yeah, I, I'm, COVID in Africa, I think, has gone exactly as we would have expected sitting back in March 2020 and looking at the data that was available then, it was never going to be a big problem in most African countries, and it hasn't been. Um, the, the the response has been a huge issue, um, and Africa's disproportionately been harmed by the public health response, which is badly misplaced to COVID. But COVID itself has gone exactly as expected in that the vast majority of African populations have been barely affected in terms of mortality. Or when you say disease. as expected, as expected by you, as expected by the WHO, as expected by whom? As predicted by the data that was available in early 2020, for instance, the age distribution of severe COVID and COVID mortality that was published in The Lancet in March 2020 based on what came out of China, which showed a very high, you know, unusually high concentration of severe disease and mortality in very old age groups. And also very quickly we knew it was in people with metabolic disease, diabetes, obesity, and that it was very rare, almost no mortality in children and young adults, especially if they are fit. So no, that's what we saw from China, it's what we saw from Italy, it's what we saw from all the early outbreaks. So do you, do you um, count the Diamond Princess as a, a valid, you know, quasi-experiment? Well, not really. I mean, the Diamond Princess was all old people. And the, what that showed was that um, despite it being concentrated in those age groups, most old people would be would be fine with COVID. Uh, that it, you know, it suggested there was already a significant part of either some sort of innate immunity, which, which is also relevant, I think, to what happened in Africa. So, so, I mean, yeah, the African population is unusual globally in that it is very young. So sub-Saharan countries, um, more than half the population are under 20. So, and, and obesity is very rare. And, you know, the age group, the average age of death from recorded from COVID in Western countries is about 80. And only about less than 1% of Sub-Saharan Africans are over 75. So uh, there's hardly anyone who can be in that severe category, that high-risk category in the continent. 
So um, now I assume the same genetic bunch, if they're in um, Paris, Germany, uh, or you know France, um, England, so forth, they're they're reaching eighty. Uh, so it, I, is it a question that there are so many more births in Africa, sub-Saharan, kind of sub-Saharan Africa here, um, say excluding South Africa? Mm. Um, are there so many more births making the population young, or is it that people are dying off young, or they're emigrating, or what? What's what's the? What's yeah, the it's population? it's mainly driven by a high birth rate. So some countries such as Uganda, Niger, have birth rates of you know fertility rates of over five children per woman. So that's what's driving it. There is a lower life expectancy due to numerous other causes, but. A lot of that low life expectancy is also driven by infant mortality, which you know, skews it. So adults live fairly, fairly old, but they don't live as long on average as Western adults. But it's the very high birth rate that's um, driving, you know, causes the age population to be as it is, the, the age pyramid. So, um, I mean, what it means is that if you're looking at mortality per person you expect it to be very low and that's what we've seen um, it doesn't mean that in 75 year olds and above especially if they're obese that they're any better off they, they may even be worse off but there's so few of them that yeah. compared to other disease persons it hasn't been a, a big deal if you if you look at south africa you know, the, the population is significantly older. It's much more like uh, the age pyramid. If you look at it, it's much more like a Western country, a European country. And um, if um, you know, the, there is a much higher rate of obesity and metabolic disease in South Africa, that's well documented. So and the COVID mortality is much higher, still half of the UK per, you know, per population but it is much higher than other sub-Saharan countries. And it's completely, as you predict, just you know, purely based on age and on metabolic disease rates. Right. So I, I have this, um, I'm working separately on a book on, on cancer um, and some of the kind of unknown or unthought about statistics. And I don't want to get too far into that, but I've looked at the kind of demographic part of Africa in this regard, because cancer mm. is one of those things that doesn't really show up as much in Africa. It's not as big a problem. Yeah. Um, and you know, some exceptions, what, but, yeah. what is that? Is it, you know, is it the air, is it the, yeah. the water, the, um, you know, it, and it's, it's, you know, it's an age thing, you know, so one of the terms I, I don't think I came up with originally, but, uh, I heard it someplace. I haven't been able to find it anywhere aside from my own words, but is that cancer is a disease of success in the sense that nobody wants cancer, but, but it's a, it's a, a, a kind of a barometer of your societal success and having people live longer. And so places where, you know, uh, kind of like as Hobbes said, I think it was, you know, nasty, brutish and short. Um, you don't get to get cancer. So, you know, there have been a lot of interesting societies uh, over the history of, you know, mankind, um, you know, through antiquity. But cancer wasn't one of the, you know, cancer was not a problem for the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Greeks and so forth, because they had, you know, reasonable societies, but they didn't live, much, you know, that long enough yeah. or they couldn't diagnose, et cetera. And so when, you, when we talk about South Africa having a higher metabolic you know, problems, i.e. obesity illnesses and things that are, are, are ancillary to that, um, say hypertension and, you know, potentially high cholesterol and whatnot. Mm. Um, you know, that's kind of like, you know, it sounds to me that I would rather have that problem of metabolic disorder than, 
than uh, schistosomiasis or um, uh, malaria and so forth. And, and you know, it is, is kind of the, the lower, um, uh, the, the lower mortality, um, uh, I guess I have to say this right, the, the, the lower age at which people die in a good part of, you know, say mid-Africa, uh, mid-Sub-Saharan Africa, is that, you know, war, famine, um, illness, um, and, and, and what should be, I think you hinted at it earlier, what should be the WHO and or global focus on uh, those parts of Africa, you know, in a sense to tailor it to their needs rather than our uh, assumptions? Yeah, yeah so a, a lot of it is infant mortality. So if, you, if young children are dying, then, you know, the average age of death is much, much lower. Mm -hmm. You're pulling the average down, although the median is not so different. So uh, in malaria, 90% of deaths from malaria, for instance, are under five years of age. Um, in, in malnutrition based diseases, um, you know, diarrhea, pneumonia, etc., which are much more common in the presence of malnutrition, are much uh, a big burden in sub-Saharan African countries. So a lot of it is very early death and if you get if a child gets to say 10 or 12 then they can expect a fairly long life um there's obviously high rates of tuberculosis hiv etc that hit adults you know one cancer that does hit women significantly is cervical cancer um it's unusual in the cancers in that it's middle-aged women that get cervical cancer not old age so much mm -hmm. um well, that's also an infectious disease, probably. I mean, it's a human. Yes, yeah, so it's related to. Well, all this is an infectious disease, and uh, you know. So, I guess the question would be, um, you know, there's always like the Watergate question: What did we know? How did we know it? When did, when did we know it? Um, but, you know, did, did people, um, I guess, in charge, uh, WHO and all these global initiatives, did we misspend uh, money um, in Say you know sub-Saharan Central Africa uh, on 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 vaccine pushes, uh, and how much was spent? Well, and, well clearly, yeah, we and, did. And uh, where could that where could that money have gone? What and were other things neglected? And I guess a secondary, just to you know, put a little cherry on the cake. I apologize, but you know, was did we apply a secondary virus of economic downturn uh, to those mm -hmm. places? And and what are the ramifications? So. I, I apologize for packing my super duper question. I, I'm sure you can, you know, slice through it. I hope. Yeah. So, okay. Firstly, we didn't know what we were doing. Um, even the, you know, the WHO guidelines for pandemic influenza released just a few months before COVID in 2019, they point out that low income populations will be disproportionately harmed by, you know, they didn't envision lockdowns, but, you know, just closing of borders and interrupting supply chains and so on. So we knew that sub-Saharan African populations would be particularly affected by what became lockdowns and they'd be affected far worse than people in wealthier, older nations where COVID is more of a problem. So we were, when we transferred the novel response that we're using in the West, where there's an older population to Africa, we knew that it would have much less impact because COVID was going to be much less of a problem based on age and comorbidities. But we knew that it would be much more harmful to these people. 
So WHO knew this, WHO, they modelled what might happen to malaria in early 2020 due to lockdowns and supply chain interruption. We know kids die of malaria because they don't get drugs in time. They don't get diagnosed and get drugs. You know, the drugs are good for malaria and you've got antimicrobials, but the... Maybe even HCQ, by the way. Well, yeah, I mean, that doesn't work so well in Africa now no, because no, of resistance, just, but Artemisus, et cetera. Right. So there are good drugs for malaria. People die because they don't get treated. If you interrupt supply lines, if you close clinics, you miss that 48 hours where you have to get treatment. So more kids die, that's obvious. Uh, tuberculosis is the same. If you close clinics, people don't get their treatment for tuberculosis. They keep infecting others and they get worse themselves. HIV is the same. So we knew that we would kill people increasingly from malaria, HIV, TB, and that's been shown in WHO figures since then. Um, we know that if you reduce economic output, if you reduce GDP, it impacts infant mortality very heavily. And the World Bank and Bank of International Settlements and so on have got data on this. Uh, this was all predicted in 2020 and before. So we knew that harming these economies would increase child mortality. Um, and then, you know, we shift to the vaccine, are we wasting money? So WHO did a study in, it's up to September 2021, a data gathering, where they looked at serology for COVID in Africa, and they showed that about 66% of people looking across many countries across Africa had antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. So that means far more than 66% had already been infected by with COVID, had COVID okay. and were immune to it. And we know from CDC data and elsewhere that if you vaccinate someone who's already had COVID, it makes minimal clinical difference or almost indiscernible in, yeah, in the best case. Very clinical sense either. You know, I, 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 if you look at the definition of vaccine prior to the COVID um, world, uh, vaccine is a, 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 an item given before an outbreak not during, not after. Yeah, well, certainly before an infection. Yeah, and, and yeah, we don't, you know, there's no point giving measles to someone who's already just had measles, yeah? Because they have extremely good immunity post-infection, they won't need That's no, actually potentially a and, and we know COVID's essentially the same. So yeah. they, in the presence of increasing malnutrition, increasing infant mortality, um, malaria, TB, HIV, etc. They launched on the largest public health program in history to try to vaccinate 70% of people on the continent with a vaccine that they knew by then would need two doses and that would wear off in six to 12 months. So, and they knew that nearly all the people they would be injecting were already immune right. to the disease that they were vaccinating and, against. And this, the, the mRNA vaccines uniquely have storage issues and they they you know need low temperatures and whatnot mm. that don't really pertain to a lot of the other vaccines and yes and so that adds to the logistical difficulties it adds to the resources that are diverted and it's not just buying the vaccines which is you know, billions of dollars it's um you know africa cdc estimated 10 billion just for two doses for the continent which you know malaria programs are three billion a year so this is far more than any other disease but um 
if you're vaccinating everyone in a population, you have one health worker per often per two or 3000 people. So instead of that health worker seeing kids who come in with acute fever and managing, saving them from dying from malaria, they're off vaccinating adults who have already had COVID with a vaccine that will last a few months. Um, that, you know, has significant side effects more than other vaccines um, based on, you know, the what we know associated adverse events, etc. It was not shown in the randomized controlled trials by Pfizer and Moderna to decrease all-cause mortality at all. But um, it's taking all these health resources to give these injections. So inevitably, you have a cost in other diseases where more people are going to die from other diseases so th this is not you know it's not some like it's not a novel thing to say this this is just public health 101 and everyone in who running this program in unicef that used to concentrate on children but is now implementing this vaccine program that you know unicef is doing that, that huh unicef is the implementing partner partner of covax so if you look at the UNICEF website, there's a huge concentration on COVID, which, you know, cures people at an average age of over 75. That's UNICEF from children to COVID. United Nations Initiative for Children's Education, excuse me, for COVID Educational Fund. If they just changed, changed the C in the middle of yeah. UNICEF. I think they're actually good, no? So, yeah, so it's, you know, this is where we are, Gavi, which is, there, you know, it's concentrated on vaccination. It's another international agency set up 15 years or so ago that is devoting much of its resources now to COVID. But, you know, it's measles vaccination in sub-Saharan Africa is an important thing. Other, there are other childhood vaccines. All those rates have dropped off during COVID, the, the vaccines that may actually save children's lives. But the concentration is on this, uh, you know, you can, we can speculate over why. Presumably it's pressure from people who are making a lot of money from these vaccines. It's hard to imagine any other reason. Yeah. So fortunately I'm sitting down when you said that, but could you repeat that? Because, um, well, well, there's not a good public health reason. And I, I haven't heard anyone put together a good public health justification for any of this or a few, you know, any of the figures I just gave, because they're the WHO figures and so on. It's, it's what so it people, is. Yeah. People have so made... so the, the only reason that I can see is a business reason. It's right. about making money from so making money for populations. Home. Making money for whom? Making money for whoever benefits from the vaccine and the, the world around the vaccine. Um, so so I, I got a separate question. So the World Health Organization, that's a non-profit, I assume. Um, it's, a, it's, it's not a non-profit. It's an international agency. So technically, it's, it's an arm of the United Nations. Okay, I apologize. Yeah. Um, so ideally, I mean, one assumes they have salaries from the United Nations and wherever they get their coffers and whatnot. Mm. Um, has there ever been evidence of, you know, sideline deals? I mean, you know, just to change topics slightly, you know, FIFA... Mm. Um, you know, picks up sight for its its um, you know matches and whatnot, the World Cup and so forth. And there's you know wink wink nudge nudge thought that maybe they pick Qatar because you know some of the people in FIFA might have 
you know, I don't know, gotten some kind of financial benefit. And these agencies, I assume their salaries are not super duper, but in, you know, compared to, you know, what what uh, sheiks might offer. Um, is there some type of revolving door? I mean, I, the, the, you know, the new Pfizer video uh, by Project Veritas mm. um, talks, I mean, they talk about the, the virus and, and directed evolution, whatnot, whether it's gain of function. I, I want to leave that aside. For me, the, the real virus is what, what he subtly calls yeah, I agree. regulatory capture. Yeah. And so regulatory capture is one of these innocuous sounding terms, but what it means is basically the kick, what I call the kickback feedback loop. And mm. um, I suppose there's a certain amount of kicking back in soccer as well, but you know, on the field, but off the field, if you have a kickback feedback loop, um, <clears throat> that implies that the mechanism is broken. It's, it's like having gangs run the police. Um, yeah. And, you know, is there evidence of that? What, what would be the other explanation for kind of the wholesale co-optation or, or adoption of really more of a, a pharmaceutical vaccine initiative than one that's dealing genuinely with public health in the poorest areas on earth? Yeah, so it's not regulatory capture, but it, it's similar in some ways. There's a, a capture of public health, of global health. So about 20 years, 25 years ago, we started having public-private partnerships, which seemed a good idea at the time. It's where a private sector corporation or individuals, public, you know, private foundations, etc., partner with these international agencies, UN type, like UNICEF, WHO, and they bring money and they bring some expertise in marketing, etc. And it seemed a good idea at the time, gee, more money, that will save lives, and it did. Um, so, you know, TB, HIV, malaria and so on have gone down partly to a large part because of this private money. But in the process, you end up, um, so if you take WHO, it was originally just funded, it had essentially core funding from the countries of the world. And it looked from a technical point of view at where that money should be spent best to reduce disease burden. And that's ostensibly where it went. When you start getting private money, most of the private money and now a lot of the public money is rather than having core funding to WHO, it's to, you know, program X of WHO to do this work in this area, even with these people, run these meetings, etc. And so they're directing what WHO does with their money and WHO doesn't or hasn't felt it can say no because it feels it needs the money. And if you're working in WHO, your salary is from WHO, but you know that that salary is actually from the grant, the largesse of this person or this corporation or whatever that's giving money for that program. And if that money stops, then you'll probably lose your job. Your team will lose their jobs. So inevitably, although you're in WHO and it's an international agency, you end up working, making sure that your grant is renewed, your, you know, your, your money to WHO that's funding your program is renewed by the donor that you're, you know well and you're talking with. And so you make sure you do what they want. So if you, you know, not many donors, private donors or corporations are interested in training health workers, you know, so that you have one health worker per 400 people instead of 2000 because, or improving supply lines, because it's boring. It doesn't get on the BBC and no one makes money out of that except, you know, 
the country itself because it improves its economy because its health is better. That's not of interest to the donor in general. The, the donor wants to make return on their investment. If they're a pharmaceutical company, they need to sell drugs and they need to do that for their shareholders. You know, it's their job, make money for your shareholders. So you give money to WHO program that is likely to and can be directed to end up buying your products, prioritizing your products. So if you're a vaccine manufacturer, you're not going to give it to uh, improving, you know, zinc or vitamin D supplementation. Yeah, you're going to give it to vaccination. So you end up with a large part of WHO that's living off your money, just concentrate on vaccination and no one's concentrated on zinc supplementation. So it's not so WHO then isn't working on where they think they can save the most lives. They're working on where they have money to work. So suddenly over a couple of decades, you have this, the agenda is now set by where the money comes from, not by the core technical expertise of WHO. Hmm. And you know, there's politics around leadership of WHO and so on that can be directed by private donors and countries, et cetera. So that contributes, but the institution as a whole has now shifted from based on countries and the needs of populations to being based on what its donors are interested in. And that's not necessarily saving the most lives. It's, um, they would like to save lives, but they need to sell their product while they're doing it. Now, I think COVID has been an extreme example of that, where it's now got to, you know, you can't argue that COVAX is saving lives. It's the, the big vac uh, COVID vaccine program, low middle income countries, COVAX. It's not, there's no evidence that it's saving lives. I mean, there's some silly modeling out there saying 20 million lives saves, et cetera, which makes no sense because in the whole first whole year of the, you know, the pandemic, as we know, nothing like that number of people died, and it's usually the first year of a pandemic. So, I mean, that's just it's just silly modeling. But uh, so, there's no good evidence that um, it's saving lives, and you can show on the back of an envelope that it's almost certainly costing lives because of this cost in other disease burdens, and it's costing lives that are much younger than anyone who would be saved from COVID. So, you increase malaria, children die under five. You know, the, the death of a five-year-old, you know, death is a death, but the death of a five-year-old is a much higher burden in public health terms Absolutely. than the death of an 80-year-old. <clears throat> yeah, and, and you see that in Africa. I mean, we compared a couple of years ago the, um, the you know, COVID versus malaria, TB, and HIV. This was after a year of the pandemic in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa. And... Even in terms of mortality, COVID was, um, if you exclude South Africa, it's about you know, 6% or something of mortality compared to these other diseases. If um, It's about half that if you look at disability just at life years, which takes the age, you know, burden based on the age of death into account. So it's a tiny issue. It, there's even less people dying now than there was. You know, there's a little blip late 2021 in Africa with um, the Delta variant. But since then, 
uh, really almost no one is dying of COVID in Africa. The, 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 the WHO figures I quoted, more than two thirds of people with immunity, that was before Omicron went through. Right. So, so couple, you know, everyone is immune now. Right. A couple of questions. I mean, my own feeling, and I've written on this topic, I have an article in the Daily Skeptic in September, that Omicron is not genomically, genetically, ancestry, you know, uh, it's not yeah. a, a, a linear relative as were a lot of the earlier Greek letter um, variants of concern mm. uh, from SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, Omicron seems to be just a different thing. Um, and there have been coronaviruses yeah. forever, um, you know, circulating amongst humans, and there will be coronaviruses forever uh, if humans last mm -hmm. long enough. Um, hence, and and so, you know, are, are they still, so, you know, one of my tropes is the, you know, the, the last Japanese soldier, uh, the one who was still fighting in 1963 in the Philippines, who was fighting World War II for the mm -hmm. Japanese emperor who had long, you know, long surrendered. Um, are, are they still promoting uh, you know, the vaccine thing? Did they reach their goal of, you know, 55, 70% or whatever it was? Are they still pushing this while Omicron is around? And Omicron is, in my view, not SARS-CoV-2 um, in any sense. It's not related and it's not the same intensity and it's probably more along the common cold type. Are they still fighting this battle like that last Japanese soldier? Yeah, I mean, certainly if you look at the taxonomy, it's, if it is SARS-CoV-2, it's from a very, very early variant before Alpha almost. Yeah. Um, so, they are still pushing COVAX, yes. Um, they're talking about stopping it um, sometime. When you say COVAX, that's the name of the WHO. So, so, sorry, that's the name of the program run by WHO with Gavi, Sefi, and UNICEF. Yeah, yeah. The COVAXIN, which is, a, I think, an Indian. Um, yeah, no, so it's, it's the program. It's it's global, it's Africa, Asia, et cetera. So, yeah, they're still pushing mass vaccination with COVID vaccine. Um, they, they haven't got anywhere near 70% in a large part because African populations are not wanting it. So that they are um, burning vaccines that are expired because people, I mean, people, you know, people in Africa know what their disease burdens are. Right. They know that almost no one is dying of COVID. They know that there are bigger problems with other diseases. And I, I mean, there is, there, I was watching a film yesterday from Senegal actually about this, that, there's um, a, a huge evidence of a very large loss of confidence in the health service because of what's happened. Right. So people know that this isn't appropriate. They know that something else is driving this and it's not public health priorities. Right. So, the, I mean, the danger with this is that, I mean, WHO, parts of WHO were doing a lot of good. Health services in these countries have been doing a lot of good in the past, but in bowing to these um, wealthy self-interests and skewing public health, they've shattered confidence in public health and in the health services. So we go if we come along with a program that actually makes sense, it's going to be much harder to convince people that it's for their benefit because they've seen what happens now. Yeah, and... Fool me once, fool me twice. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a, a terrible joke. Uh, uh, it's like a dad joke. Um, but you know, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is, there's only one psychiatrist, but the light bulb has to really, really want to be changed. And so, I mean, the the, the the I was thinking of that joke when you were talking because, you know, we you have this application, and if you're a psychiatrist and you want to change somebody, but that person 
doesn't even see that as a problem. You can be talking till your head is blue and it's not going to change things. You know, there's yeah. been a lot of resistance on the ground and, and a lot of it has been made, you know, frankly ridiculed. And there's been a lot of uh, kind of secondary arm twisting or primary arm twisting mm. of the African uh, leaders who did not buy into this narrative. I, I believe it was um, Tanzania's uh, president. I might be wrong. Yeah, mega fully. And, and, and then there's also this, I don't know if you've touched on this conspiracy theory that certain African leaders died specifically, the ones who opposed it. I, I, maybe, I, maybe you could address how they were received, what kind of arm twisting, whether actual financial disincentives and so forth to their behaviors, and what happened. Yes, I, I, it's, it's hard to know. Um, yeah, there are a number of countries that, for various reasons, didn't go along with the lockdowns, etc. Tanzania was the famous one, um, Burundi, Madagascar to some extent, etc. Um, there were four leaders, of, there are very few countries, there's four leaders who died um, in late 2020, early 2021. Um, but, you know, the, who knows? I mean, people do die. There's a disproportionate number of leaders who died who happened to be not in tune with the lockdowns. But um, I, I think, you know, he, he, were they coincidences happen? So were they replaced by leaders who did? Just curious. Did that, that did their deaths affect change in that country in a certain? So I think Tanzania was affect was replaced by a leader who is much more in tune with what the World Economic Forum would like, etc. Um, but I don't think the country has changed much. I haven't been there, so and I'm talking from a distance. But uh, I think people had realised that I, you know. Tanzania was almost the only country in sub-Saharan Africa that actually maintained a positive gross domestic product. Hmm. The others went into recession, yeah. yeah. So it, people can see that. They can see that the economy is much better than other countries. They can see that no more people are dying. So then you can change leaders, but it's very hard for that leader to actually convince people to do something which was obviously a mistake. Right. That's my psychiatry joke. Yeah. Um, and so this might be one way in which Tanzania, maybe not used in the same sentence that often, but Tanzania and Sweden. Yeah, and, you know, Belarus, but that's not the most popular country and a few others. But there are, there are a number of countries that didn't um, lock down. And, yeah, the, yeah, if you look at even COVID mortality, it's not significantly different. I think Sweden now has the, the lowest all-cause mortality in the OECD. Hmm. So they seem to make a good decision. Yeah, I think so too. Um, so I'm, I'm going to segue slightly to something close and you know near and dear to my heart. Um, and I, I, I don't want to spring this on you too much. Um, let's see if I can do, uh, how do I do this? Um, nope. Let's see. I'm going to need my glasses here. Um, but I wanted to talk about, uh, I have my book, um, Zika. And um, uh, here we go. Sorry about that. Um, and so this is my book, Overturning Zika, and it's on Amazon. You can buy it, look at it, review it. Um, and the reason I bring this up um, is that Zika uh, was a thing in um, 2015, 2016. Really, it was 2015 item. 
and there was a lot of brouhaha in 2016 in Brazil, and then it disappeared. Um, so that was a, the last great pandemic, the last previous great pandemic. Um, and why do I bring this up? Well, because there, 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 there is a hunt still. The hunt is on for a Zika vaccine. I think it's eminently mm. achievable because there is a dengue vaccine, Vaxia, yeah. and dengue. I, I kind of consider there are four dengues, and and, and Zika is kind of, kind of, you know, the, the the fifth dengue on the same hand. It's it's a little bit minor mm. version. So Zika is a kind of a minor dengue. And so if you can make a dengue vaccine, you can make a Zika vaccine. Now, the only impediment so far has been there's been nobody around with Zika um, to test in the places that theoretically might want to. They have no interest in this topic. It's disappeared. And so it's mm-hmm. one of the things like the psychiatrist joke. Um, our uh, CDC uh, NIAID has had a half a billion dollars allocated in 2016 towards a Zika vaccine. And they haven't used that money up. So there's still this, I don't know, maybe 100 million or more left. Mm-hmm. And so we um, we offered in 2018 to you know spend tens of millions of dollars in Brazil and Colombia um, to institute a, a Zika vaccine trial. But because nobody had it, we would have to inject people with Zika vaccine. So we had to inject and infect Brazilians primarily with, with Zika. Zika yeah. And they said, thanks. <laughs> But no thanks. So they have their F- FDA, it's called Anvisa, uh, that, that looked this over and said, you know, money's nice, but you know, we're not, this is not, this is a hard sell. We haven't had it for years. Yeah. We don't want to, you know, put it in the population and God knows what will happen. Mosquitoes will pass it around, whatever. And so they, they said no to this. So lo and behold, uh, we are doing this, uh, it's called a HCT human challenge trial, uh, which its own, the, the government's own ethics panel in, in it was a blue ribbon. <laughs> Ethics panel by W um, by the NIH and, and the Walter Reed Hospital and so forth in 2016-17. They spent a million dollars and they came up with they said, no, no, no way should you have human challenge trial for this because Guatemala, Tuskegee, you know, we had we've been stained by this stuff. We don't want to go out on a limb for something that is reasonably manageable by insect control mm. and whatever. Even if you buy into the premise that Zika microcephaly is real, which I have my doubts. Anyway, so they said no to that. So lo and behold, a few years later, everyone's kind of like, you know, maybe forgotten about this. And still right now in, in, in um, the Bloomberg School at Johns Hopkins by Dr. Anna Durbin, they're doing this human challenge trial unless they've already finished it. So they're enlisting and enrolling people, uh, Americans in Baltimore, women uh, of pregnancy age, to be injected with Zika. Um, it's an odd choice and, and so forth. But, but my, so here's, that's the, the prologue. Uh, my question is, um, you know, would a Zika vaccine, uh, I assume, let's say they have it in the next year, uh, what would be the next steps for the WHO if they had one in hand? Um, and would that be wise? Yeah, it's it's a good example, I think, of this problem we are talking about where the money comes from people who are interested in having a vaccine and potentially selling it. So that's what, you know, scientists do what they're paid to do. They, they don't sit around and say, gee, what's the biggest burden we're going to work on today? Okay, let's do that. Here's a pot of money. They they go for grants which someone is giving because they're interested in people working on their favourite area. So they they work on what they're paid for um, and, you know, almost exclusively, and they have to because you've got to get bread and butter on the table. So... 
if someone's paying for a Zika vaccine, they will work on a Zika vaccine. Um, and unfortunately, then if someone pays for WHO to run Zika vaccination, then WHO will run probably Zika vaccination, even though as, you know, we discussed earlier before this call that um, there are almost no or virtually no reports of Zika being an active threat anywhere for the last few years. So, um, yeah, uh, they, it, it will be driven by not by a pull mechanism from need from disease burden, but by a push mechanism from people who will end up making money so this, for their shareholders. Kind of bait and switch issue. It's, it seems to me not only has there been very little in the way of Zika, but Zika microcephaly is a twofold thing. There's Zika. And then the real problem with Zika is not Zika, which is a very mild kind of, you don't even know you've had it kind of thing as far as the illness. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, maybe a little fever or something like that. But for, you know, for 67 years of its knowledge from the, you know, Uganda Zika forest until, you know, 2009 or a little thereafter, there have been zero cases attributed of illness yeah. to, yeah. to Zika. So Zika is not <clears throat> the problem. The problem is that it may cause microcephaly in children and in, in, in pregnancy. Yes. And, and, and I've seen your work on that, that, you know, suggests that there's not very strong data. No, on that never, there never was. It was all kind yeah. of rushed. It was a rush to judgment. And I think a lot of scientists had their, you know, their own personal kind of social credit, um, intellectual scoring, uh, however you want their Q score, whatever it is, go up as a result and hasn't gone down. Uh, as a result of the theories not holding water. Um, but so the microcephaly thing, so insofar as there actually have been places where Zika exists, in, like in Rajasthan, India, 2018, there was no microcephaly. So that's my major point. Even if you buy the whole theory, it just yeah. never happened again. So the places where there is Zika, there's no microcephaly. And microcephaly is the thing that people are worried about because Zika is not a thing to worry about per se. Mm. Um, so, you know, but, but my feeling is that there's been no kind of takedown of the initial formulation, there's no investigation because, mm. in a sense, the pot of gold at the end of this, you know, kind of inverse rainbow, um, it's not as, as, as pleasant as a rainbow, and it's not really a pot of gold, but is to have the theory stand still so that the, the payoff can be in, in the vaccine realm. Yeah. And there are a lot of kind of uh, uh, innocent bystanders who are willing to just watch. Um, this happen. And, and, and I, I, you know, I can't stand in the middle of the world and yell, stop anything. Um, but, you know, is there ever a mechanism, I guess this is a deep question in a sense, but is there a mechanism for people to come back from their stances, whether it was the, the COVID stance, yeah. the COVAX program of WHO? It, does anyone ever say they were wrong? Uh, yeah, uh, so yeah, you're right. Um, the incentives are to keep it going, um, right or wrong, because there's money in, for Zika people get money from Zika, you know, from the Zika industry. Um, so if they came out, if they were convinced that there was, you know, not a big problem with microcephaly or no microcephaly, and they came out and said this, they would be cutting off their own salaries. So the, the only way that you can fix this is by having public health agencies, such as the WHO, that are immune from conflict of interest which means essentially, you know, realistically, they can't be taking private funding, they can't be taking foundation funding. They have to get core funding from um, 
you know, the original model of WHO where they get core funding from countries based on GDP. And then you have to have really strong conflict of interest rules in place where that stop um, people who are, say, working in WHO from then, it seems to be happening in, say, the FDA, shifting to immediately to private industry, which means, you know, that they know they're going to get a job there if they toe the line. So, and there are, you know, there are other areas of work where this sort of thing is followed. So, you know, if you work for certain companies, you, you have a in your contract that you will not, if you leave, you won't work for some other company for a certain time in that field. So um, th that is, I think, the only way to do it. You, you've got to exclude any conflict of interest, which means excluding money from people who would benefit from certain decisions and excluding the obvious forms of influence through financial incentives, et cetera, and future career that you that tend to sway people's opinions. And then you can have a rational discussion within those organizations or they can convene meetings where they look at disease burdens, they look in a rational way, and they say, okay, Zika is number 142 on our list of disease burdens. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to give it $100 million because we know spending $100 million on all these other 141 diseases will have far more impact on improving human health. Right. So uh, uh, one of the, uh, you know, I, I was, when I was a kid, I read Batman comics and, and I, um, I idolized Bruce Wayne. And I'm wondering if there is a Bruce Wayne out there. You know, I think in some ways Elon Musk has, has turned into Bruce Wayne, you know, kind of the Superman uh, playboy, not really playboy type, but, you know, who, who's looking to, you know, in his Batman role is looking to take on uh, bigger conspiracies and take over things in a good way. Um, Bill Gates, I think, aspired to that uh, Bruce Wayne role. And I bring him up because, you know, I was thinking while you were speaking that, you know, if it's not going to be the WHO, let's say the WHO can't reform itself in that way. It's too far gone. Yeah. It's in a sense corrupted. It's con con convoluted. It's contrived. And it's, um, you know, not going to be able to get out of its own way. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, then it would be some kind of quasi-private thing. So the bill and formerly uh, wife Melinda Gates Foundation uh, would theoretically be a model for that. Have they succeeded? And has, you know, Bill Gates, in a sense, invalidated himself from this realm of, of third world or, you know, sub-Saharan Africa um, treatment initiatives by his own um, kind of misapplied um, COVAX-oriented uh, initiatives? So that's a... a Tough question to unpack. <laughs> um, I apologize. No, I, I think you know, humans are human. So I think if it ends up on one person, um, one, they tend to, you know, we, we can all get corrupted by our own egos or our own, you know, we all deep down would like to be affirmed by others, etc. Yeah. So we end up doing things to make ourselves look better. We all do that. And that may not be in the best interest of everyone else. Um, secondly, as an individual, we, you know, if we grow up in a wealthy family in the United States or Germany or something, we do not understand deep down the true needs and desires of someone in Malawi or rural Vietnam. Yeah. So we cannot make those decisions 
on what that person needs. It needs to be, so you need first a, a lot of people so that you get a diversity of backgrounds coming into it. And then you need to have them purely advising, but in the end, the local populations need to be the ones that decide what is their, what is most important to them. And if you're not doing that, you basically become a fascist enterprise. You are, you're a central authority telling other people what to do because you decide what's good for them. You decide who the bad people are, who the good people are, what the population will do, who is right and who is wrong. And, you know, that's comfortable for the people on top. But feudal systems are great for the lords and ladies, but it is the opposite of what we were supposed to start doing after World War II when we got rid of, we thought, fascism and started undoing colonialism. Right. So, you know, where are we going now and where you go, you know, if you're having private individuals with huge companies deciding these things, you're essentially going back to the East India Company and that sort of mindset where you have private companies with their self-interest deciding what populations will do. And it, it's, it will inevitably end up in disaster because it always has through human history. Mm. So. Yeah. Well, on that, on ha that happy note. <laughs> well, so I'd say I, I agree. I think maybe the WHO is redeemable, maybe it isn't. But we do need some sort of organisation, but it needs to be completely different, you know, very different rules, much more like the original concept of WHO, but nothing right. like what we're seeing now. Right. So I, I, I feel a little bit uh, talked out myself. I don't know about you. Um, are there any things you'd like to cover before we uh, disappear from this video cast? Um, no, just, I mean, make the observation that COVID is not a one-off. It's not intended to be a one-off. You know, the people who are making money out of COVID and have made tens of billions of dollars out of COVID are the people, the same people who are on the sort of pandemic preparedness agenda where um, they plan to essentially repeat what happened with COVID far more often for far even less reason. Um, and, you know, pandemics have happened through human history, but they're nothing like the disease burdens we get from diabetes or tuberculosis, malaria, mm -hmm. pneumonia, whatever, all the other things that kill us. So, um, yeah, the, I think the whole pandemic preparedness agenda is part of the same skewing where money is driving public health, not after disease burden, but after profit. And uh, I think, you know, if we don't wake up to this, it's going to end up in this new colonialist feudal society where we have this rich public health bureaucracy at the top, not really public health, um, telling everyone else what to do. And we, um, COVID is a good example of how easily this can happen, but we need to wake up to this whole conflict of interest thing that seems to have been a bit of a cancer on society. Yeah, no pun intended on the cancer. That's not very positive, but um, yeah, yeah, it's just we're seeing the start of, and it, it's not, you know, it's very clear if you look at the World Economic Forum and Pfizer and so on what they're planning for the future. It's they're planning a lot more of what we've seen in the last few years. Yeah, uh, much more intense. I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably let you have the last last word, but uh, I, there's an article I just was thinking about 
from March 2022, but actually, said, I, I really like her work. Her, her name is Stephanie Nolan. She was writing for the New York Times, and she's got an article about why, you know, a lot of the things we talked about today, why there was no COVID in Central Africa. Mm. And there's a, a Dr. Prabhat Jha, J-H-A, who heads the Center uh, for Global Health Research in Toronto. Mm. Um, and, uh, and he was looking at Sierra Leone and other countries, but you know, they didn't find anything. Um, and, uh, uh, I'm just going to kind of scroll to the end of this article. Um, and, and uh, basically they didn't find anything in Africa. They still haven't found anything in Africa. And this is March, 2022. Mm. And he says, we can't get complacent and assume Africa can't or will not go the way of India with the Delta variant. Uh, he says a new variant as infectious as Omicron, but more lethal than Delta could yet emerge, he warned, leaving Africans vulnerable unless vaccination rates increased significantly. We should really avoid the hubris that all Africa is safe. And that's the concluding sentence. So Stephanie Noll, I think she did a pre- really good job covering all the things, actually, you know, a lot of things you, you mentioned um, by different analysts and so forth. So you're kind of all those analysts in one, so I have to compliment you. Um, and there was a lot of it to do with the age, uh, of, you know, the younger age and so forth. Um, but then she, she, you know, the coda uh, for her article, which I assume is the, the message, the take home message is that forget all that stuff we just wrote about that didn't happen in Africa and that malaria is more important and, and tuberculosis and HIV and we diverted the money and all that kind of stuff. We still, you know, can't let, you know, we can't have the hubris. And I think it's kind of a reverse, like almost, again, getting back to my psychiatrist, yeah. but almost a, a Freudian um, projection, you know, in his sense that, that, that he has the hubris. So I'm going to repeat this part. We can't get complacent and assume Africa won't get severe the way India did. And, and we should really avoid the hubris, the hubris that all Africa is safe. Um, I, I just don't, I, I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's no, no, yeah, I mean, data out there to convince anybody even when the data goes against oneself. Yeah. I mean, firstly, India, um, you, you know, they had a problem there with Delta, but it, it was still far less than Western countries. So we well, need to remember that. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of people, there's 1.4 billion people in India and the, the mortality per million is still half of what it was in say the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we can get complacent because we know that virtually everyone in Africa has good immunity because we know that post-infection immunity is very effective. And CDC is very clear. They studies show this very clearly. So we can get complacent in that we can say that people in Africa will continue to be at extremely low risk from this virus because of age, because of immunity, because of low metabolic disease, but also because, you know, there's evidence of cross reactivity with T cells, et cetera, which was from 2020, which was can probably contributes as well. Um, there's some evidence that exposure to mycobacteria is actually protecting There's work on BCG vaccines in Australia, looking at this. So there's a combination of fact, there's a lot of sun, et cetera. Yeah. And so more vitamin D. So we, we can be very complacent to the point that we can say that Africans are going to remain extremely low risk compared to the global population from this disease. Right. But we, uh, what I don't understand is why are we complacent about rising malaria, rising TB, rising HIV, rising childhood malnutrition, and reducing GDP, which we know will convert into a very high infant yeah. mortality. Um, why are we complacent 
about that and worried about a virus that we know will remain a low burden. And we can, from good public health science, show it will remain a low burden. So, the, you know, this comes back to it's exciting to talk about COVID. It's not exciting to talk about all the diseases that are actually killing people in these countries. But we're not supposed to be doing this for excitement. We're supposed to be doing it for to reduce these disease burdens and actually improve people's lives. So, all right, well, I couldn't um, say that better know. than you. And I, I'm very much uh, grateful that you were able to spare some time for me and for us. And uh, I, I, I love uh, listening to you. Uh, it's, they're words of wisdom, and I hope people widely share this. So if you enjoyed this, um, please let us know. Please share. And um, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bell. Uh, so, thanks for your time. All right. Have a good day, everybody.